You kind of have like a Lin-Manuel Miranda haircut. You know when he cuts his hair short? I don't, but he obviously knows when I do. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda has a Mark Oppenheimer. Lin-Markwell Oppenheimer. <laughs> there you go. Mirandenheimer. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by the other hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Ho, ho, ho. Hey, don't call me that. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom, shalom. There we go. Oi, oi, oi. Oi, 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 if you will. <laughs> Our Jew of the Week is comedy veteran Meryl Marco, who joined us to talk about her new graphic memoir, We Saw Scenery, as well as her years on The David Letterman Show, and so much more. And our Gentile of the Week. It's been a while. We haven't had a lot of GOTWs. But it's Christmas. We figured, why not? Tis the season. We need to restock the wine cellar of GOTWs, of Gentiles of the Week. As they say, anytime a Gentile of the Week comes on an Orthodox, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> uh, the GOTW this week is Monsieur l'Ambassadeur Philippe Etienne, the French ambassador to the United States, who gave Liel a lesson in French ideas of secularism and talked about rising anti-Semitism in his country. A little light fare for the holidays. And also talked about some of his favorite fast food in America because obviously I took the conversation there. It's like, thank you for talking about anti-Semitism in France. Have you tried Arby's? <laughs> Did you guys see that piece in the Times Magazine on Sunday about Arby's? This guy's love letter to Arby's? It was pretty funny. It was. As you know, I mean, Friendly's is my haute cuisine, but when I go low, I always went Wendy's. Never. I don't know that I've ever been to an Arby's. I would say you're probably the only person I know who would pick Wendy's out of the lineup. I think Wendy's is pretty good. I haven't really had it since college, but I discovered it in college and it was amazing. Well, the thing is, here, here's, this is going deep. Please, please. The reason, of course, that Wendy's circa, say, 1985 was kind of classier joint to go to, why the Oppenheimer parents would go there feeling like it wasn't quite as bad as going to a McDonald's or a Burger King was because they offered the baked potato. So my mom could get the baked potato, right? <laughs> and then, of course, they had a salad bar and a baked potato bar. The thinking woman's side dish. Right. The thinking so, woman's French fry. <laughs> Wait, they had a salad bar? They had in many of their locations. By the way, where did the salad bar go? Could could we bring back? Uh, well, the pandemic, I think, brought. Has, has, no, it was, they're done. it was gone before that. The sneeze guards. But Wendy's had the salad bar and the baked potato bar. So you could feel like you were sort of classing it up with a health food. Wait, a baked potato bar? Yeah, but you could put bacon bits on it. You could put shredded cheese. You, Josh Cross is nodding like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, so many good times at the baked potato bar. Liel, you were growing up over in Israel where they barely had desalinated water and we had baked potato bars. And they definitely didn't have bacon bits. You know bacon bits? Oh, but listen, but I, I will say this again. I had the burger ranch. <laughs> you, you know what they said with the burger ranch again? I think I, I talked about this again. I'll talk about this again and again and again. Burger ranch had two hamburgers. They had hamburger <laughs> And then they had Spanish hamburger. You want to know what's in the Spanish hamburger? <laughs> Please. Salsa. A pickle. A pi <laughs> nope. <laughs> Salsa. Who is that kind of money, Oppenheimer? Um, I appreciate that, that not just Sephardic heritage. I will say one thing on, on fast food. Since I've gone kosher, I've repeated the following experiment in every single fast food restaurant, which is to go in and ask for the biggest burger with everything but the burger, which I can no longer eat. And I'm proud to report that there is one clear winner in 
which case the burgerless burger tastes precisely like <laughs> the burgered burger. Do you want to guess which one that is? Uh, burger King. You literally cannot taste the difference. Yeah, I was going to say the Whopper because there's so much sauce on it and That's so exactly much right. shredded lettuce. And yeah, You order yeah. a Whopper, you would not even <laughs> notice that there is no meat in the Whopper. Didn't you have like a religious experience when you explained to someone behind the counter that like it was because of like a religious dictate that you couldn't have the burger? I, I sure did. It was rendered even better because it was like three in the morning and like Josh Grass was helping me find my way to the nearest. And this was your coming out as a kosher style Jew. This is my my big debutante ball. Your little debutante ball. <laughs> Those are not kosher. You know, that's a Goyan snack cake, little Debbie's. Wait, I want to talk about you sending tasty cakes to Sarah Fredmanator. And Robert Scaramuccia too. I don't know if you ever got, is, is the Mooch on the call with us right now? He's not here. He's off prepping for, for Xmas, for Christmas. We let him off this week. <laughs> I felt like some of our staff deserved something special for the holidays. And the two treats that the Kirshner family really relishes as kind of part of its Philadelphia heritage are Goldenberg's Peanut Chews. I don't know if those are Philadelphian, but they feel it to me. I believe they are. Yeah, they're in that vicinity. But what are Philadelphian are tasty cakes with a K, with two Ks, and especially the butterscotch crimpet, which is the only real tasty cake. And they are divine. Once you've had one, you never go back to right. Twinkies or Little Debbie's or any of that chazarai. I will say, first of all, people were mad that Goldenberg's peanut chews were not one of the 100 most Jewish foods in our book, oh, the 100 most so Jewish delicious. foods. But in that book, Phil Rosenthal writes an entry on Entenmann's Donuts, Phil Rosenthal of Somebody Feed Phil and Everyone Loves Raymond. And he re- mentions Tasty Cakes about like being the Philadelphia treats. And I remember like, going back and forth with like the spell check on Tasty Like Tasty Cakes has a very distinct spelling. Two Ks, yeah. It's Tasty Cakes. It's spelled Tasty and then K-Y. K-E-S. <laughs> pronounced Tasty Cakes. No, I think it's pronounced uh, differently with the Y there. Do you want to say it out loud? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you set me up for that. It's like every evangelical megachurch children's service. Kids Corner with two Ks. Sarah Fredman Ader, did you enjoy the taste? Did you eat- first of all, do they have a hacksher? I wasn't sure. Can you eat them? So First of all, Mark Oppenheimer, thank you so much for the gift. It was delightful and delicious. I will just say from my perspective, I got a package on Shabbat. I couldn't open it. Um, And on Saturday night, I opened it up and there were two boxes of cake with no note. So I have an admirer sending me cake, trying to figure out who sent it. And you know, the clue, the reason I ended up asking you unorthodox folks is because it was addressed to Sarah Fredman Ader. Mm. And most of my mail just comes to Sarah Ader. And it was one word. It was no space between the three. (laughs) What I'll say is, you know, tasty cakes, I did not grow up with them because they feel, they are kosher, but they feel goyish to me, right? We had it as and I also would have Drake's cakes. And when I talked to my husband who didn't grow up Orthodox and I said, well, I would have Drake's cakes. He's like, those are the Jewish tasty cakes. Oh no. (laughs) Literally Drake's cakes are the Jewish tasty cakes. Oh, sweet, sweet mother, sister. No, tasty cakes are so (laughs) Jewy. No. Wait, so were they good? Did you like them? They're delicious. Thank you so much. You're so, welcome. Okay, good. Speaking of unorthodox gifts, um, I got a gift from Zara Fredminator. I think we did inadvertent Secret Santa. She sent me a tie-dyed t-shirt with embroidered onto it the name Podzilla. Ooh. Your rap name. So I have my first official merch, my swag. I'm ready to go. And Liel sent me a bottle of gin that arrived. He he texted me, what's your address? I texted him back and he said, okay, it'll be there in 20 minutes. He had gone on to drizzly.edu. I like to think of it as edu. It is. Dot New Haven. It's a university. It teaches you things. Yeah, dot New Haven. Drizzly.drakescakes. What kind of gin was it? I, I've finished half the bottle already. It's upstairs though. I don't remember the name of it. Gunpowder. Gunpowder. It's Irish gin and it is the finest 
gin I think maybe I've ever had. Was phenomenal. Wasn't it? It was delicioso. It was muy delicioso. I was having my third martini, and I thought, you know who would enjoy this right now? Mark, Mark Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer needs some gin. Because I really like this holiday spirit. <laughs> okay, so obviously we've segued, or as someone close to me used to mispronounce it, sieged. Someone formerly close to you. Into the holiday season. Liel, how was your Hanukkah? It was magical. It was filled with a kind of a rampage of Sifganiot tasting and only reaffirms the time-honored tradition that anything that is not raspberry jam is absolute garbage. Mm. Do not try the Nutella. Do not go for the dulce de leche. Do not try to be smart about it. It's a powdered sugar and jam type of operation. Guys, I have a hot take. I do not like jelly donuts. <gasps> I don't want anything inside the donut. You know, you know, you bite into a donut and there's like custard inside and you're like, I didn't want this. Oh. I didn't know this was there. So you don't like the Boston cream either. No. It's not just jelly. Want, you don't want... I'd prefer a donut-shaped donut um, with nothing in the middle. You need Tasty Cakes because they just have the nice butterscotch on top. Look, if someone freaking send me Tasty Cakes, I'm like, <laughs> I'm here asking. <laughs> it is happening. It is on. I'm sending you Tasty Cakes. This is also a good opportunity Again, to speak the annual truth brought forth into this world by our former producer, Lisa Goldstein, which is the inconvertible fact that latkes are by far the most freaking overrated holiday food ever. It's like the 19th best way to have a potato. It's like so much work for such a small payoff. Okay, a good latke is delicious. A Wendy's baked potato would have been a better treat for the holiday. <laughs> Wendy's latke. Correct. Um, I, yeah, Wendy herself would definitely say latke. Um, definitely. I have to say, I freaking love latkes. I like all potato products. It's like a good hash brown. Absolutely. It's amazing. It's a Jewish I'm not, hash I'm not, brown. Look, I did make them and it took a really freaking, I mean, by the way, I didn't make them. I said I wanted to make them and turn it like I was like on a call and Ben ended up like shredding all the potatoes and doing the whole thing. Key question. Did he use a food processor? He used a grater. An electric one? No, like a like a thing, like a cheese grater. See, I got to tell you, it's a lot easier when you just use an electric food processor as Sid does. But people get really testy about that. People say you have to grate them by hand. Can I just tell you? Mark, you have to grate them by hand. They don't taste the same. You don't even like them, Liel. Correct. I'm eating delicious ones made by Sid Oppenheimer. Wait, you don't like them and you have a take on how they're supposed to be yeah, made? You don't, you don't get a take. You've sacrificed your, your take. I see your take. And I add you a take from Josh Cross, which is to put all of your potato, all of your shredded potatoes and onions in a salad spinner. <gasps> is he the spinner guy? Yep. Is that how I got that idea? Wait, what is this? It's the most yeah, genius I, I, thing. All right, l- all right. Let me cut in here. Keska say? Explain to you the, the, the truth. First of all, of everything Liel has ever been wrong about, his latka take is the worst <laughs> thing he's ever been wrong about. It's the wrongest okay. wrong he's ever wrong. Second of all, However you shred them, and I actually used a manual like hand crank shredder thing this year, directly into the salad spinner. Forget this, like <laughs> squeezing them with cheese yeah, holes. Yeah, Forgetting with any of this other stuff. Spin the crap out of them. There's just enough water that's gone. And then you can just mix in what you need to mix in and fry the daylights out of them. That's amazing. I This year I was like, I, we forgot, I forgot to do that. And afterwards, I was like, you know, I think it was Melissa Clark who wrote that you had to put them in a salad spinner, but it turns out it was you, Josh. It was Melissa Cross. By the way, I, I love this podcast, helpfully delivering all of your latke recipe needs uh, the week after Hanukkah. Two weeks too late. You're welcome, <laughs> in listeners. time for Christmas. See it as 50 weeks early. <gasps> Stephanie, how was your Hanukkah? So I made rugelach this weekend, and I know that the rugelach singular is rugala mm-hmm. and plural is rugalach. We made um, Malier's sprinkle rugala recipe. Although can I say, there's actually no reason for there to be a singular to that thing because I don't think anyone in the history of the world has eaten just one. <laughs> 
Like, why even have a singular term? It's like, here are rugelach. Eat three and that. Okay, but this was the kind of thing. So first of all, the nice thing about being friends with Molly is you can text her throughout the recipe, (laughs) which I don't think you're supposed to do. But so it started with me being like, I'm going to make your rugelach today. But it was like an 11 a.m. thing. And that dough needs to rest a few times. So we didn't actually eat rugelach plural until about like 530 right before dinner. And she has a baby now and stuff. Yeah, no, she did not need to be getting my text that time. But she's very nice about it. She's a real friend of the show. Well, look, she's someone who feels very seen by the Lotkey debate because she says Lotkey. She was on Good Morning America and she said Lotkey and someone like made fun of her Ooh. Like on the show. And she's like, no, no, no. A linguist said but this is normal. So I've been reading Agatha Christie also. <gasps> Not good for the Jews. Well, yeah. So here's the thing. So I love, <laughs> I love Agatha that. Christie. Um, my gateway to this is this podcast. I think I've talked about it before. It's called Phoebe Reads a Mystery. It's the most amazing podcast. It's just a woman named Phoebe reading one chapter of mystery every single day. And so a lot of it is Agatha Christie. So I was like, you know, I want to read some of this. So I'm on my second actual book. I've read, you know, I've listened to a bunch of hers at this point. But so one day I Googled like Agatha Christie Jews. And like, because I know you, like, I know there's like this thing that's like, she's bad about Jews or whatever. But so I finally was reading, I was reading The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And mm-hmm. I got to a part where... Bring it, sister. Someone went to like, I think it was like a money... Someone, I don't understand. Maybe it was like a money lender. And she was like, yeah, there were two fellows, both with um, like Scottish names, Mr. This and this, Mr. This. And the other guy writes, I imagine there was some Semitic flair there. And I was like, oh, I see it. I see the thing, the thing that she's supposed to do. I mean, if you think she was bad to us, do you know what the original title of And Then There Were None Before is? it was 10 Little Indians, yeah. right? Before it was 10 Little Indians, it was 10 Little Something Else. Yeah. Something very delightful. To be fair to her, there's a really good piece by Joan Acasella in The New Yorker a few years ago about Agatha Christie and the Jews that points out that some people have made the argument that Christie was merely representing the widespread anti-Semitism in the upper class and middle classes at the time, and that she's not endorsing it herself as an author. She wasn't more anti-Semitic than she had to be. She was just the right level. Of- I read something, but I think it was Christopher Hitchens went to lunch with her and her husband and said that like what they said was just like horrific. But anyway, I like these books. I like some cozy wintertime murders. Oh, they're amazing. News of the Jews. First of all, Christmas brings some news to the Jews this year. It is a a minor fast day. Liel, will you be fasting for Christmas? The 10th of Tevet, as it is known in our circles. Yes, I will. Commemorating the day in which the armies of Nebuchadnezzar II, the unimprovably named king, began laying siege to the first temple. Wait, question. And this is on Christmas? Oh, this yes. Year? But not every year. It's not keyed to Christmas. This year, it's it's actually, it's very, very special. It's it's also kind of easy because it's it's a minor fast. So it's sunrise to sunset. So you don't start at Christmas Eve. You start when you wake up and look for your presents. That's when you start fasting. <laughs> and then at 4.30, when it gets dark, you're done with the whole thing. And then you have your Christmas ham. And then you have your Shabbos chicken, yes. So question. So the Christmas 10th of Tevet crossover, is that as big a deal as Thanksgiving was in 2013? Yeah, what would we call it? The... Uh, <laughs> 
Kringle vet, the, the Tevet tide, like the Yule tide. On the tenth day of Tevet. <laughs> there we go. Nebuchadnezzar gave to me nothing to eat for seventeen hours. A siege of the first temple. We have a lot of very musical members of the J Crew. We I would do. love it for one of you to come oh, up me. with a carol for the tenth of Tevet for Osre Tevet. That's your job this year, and and call it in to nine one four. Five seven zero four eight six nine. Oh, mean King Nebuchadnezzar, he burned down the temple. I'm also curious if this puts any, I'm totally serious, if this puts any interfaith families in a bind. You've got to figure the Jewish partner who's married to the Gentile partner is not doing Tenth of Tevet. Yeah, the type of person in my mind who does the most minor of all minor fast days, I don't know, but maybe. I don't know, we might be a completist. That said, what I give with one hand, I take away with the other because I know two, what I would call modern Orthodox Jews, in one case a woman, in one case a man, who are married to Gentiles and it works for their families and they do keep stuff like the 10th of 10th. So, you know, God bless. I would love to hear from that listener too. Like the person who's, whose Gentile spouse just doesn't understand his, her relationship to 10th of Tevet and how important it is. And we see you, we see you on this day. By the way, this year in particular, it's like, uh, so. So 2020. Hey, Christine, <laughs> why isn't Bernie drinking the eggnog? Well, mom. <laughs> Uh, Stephanie, as our African correspondent, take us to the news from Namibia. Okay, here's a great headline from the forward. Adolf Hitler Unona wins election in Namibia, but he isn't a Nazi. Um, So yeah, there was a local election in Namibia earlier this month and a guy named Adolf Hitler won and that his father just named him Adolf Hitler without seemingly knowing why. He says he probably didn't understand what Adolf Hitler stood for. Hmm. Well, to be perfectly honest, he named Unona after Unona Ryder. (laughs) The Adolf Hitler thing came later. That was a college. That was a phase. Although you got to think when this guy starts his political career, maybe he drops the Hitler from Adolf Hitler Unona. It's interesting. So um, I'm reading this. Namibia is a former German colony. And so Germanic names are still common. I don't think this specific one. I don't know what the joke is. Like, it's, it's kind of hard because we see this piece and we're like, oh, ha, ha, ha. But I kind of feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I feel bad for all the people who were named Adolf before 1933 and then had to live out their years with that name. What about Adolf H. Unona? Like, would that be better? There we go. <laughs> there we go. A Hitler? A Hitler? Hitler reference solved. Liel, can you top that? I believe I can. So you know that there is a specific country in Europe that I care about very deeply. It is, of course, the child rape capital of the world, Belgium. Oh, my God. And there's a lot of news out of Belgium because, as always, they're doing a whole host of anti-Semitic things. But it's the end of the year, Mark and Stephanie. And at the end of the year, you really got to bring up your A-game. You got to bring up the hate, actually. And so the great neighbor, Luxembourg, is stepping right up. A former minister and a leader of the Socialist Party of Luxembourg wrote a page-long op-ed in which he said that the state of Israel should not exist, that it is a moral travesty, uh, that Jews have not only committed genocide against Arabs, but also performed all kinds of blood libelous type experiments on them. And this would have been perfectly normal had the name of said minister not been Robert Goebbels. <laughs> like spelled the G-O-E-B-B-L-S. Minister Goebbels doesn't like the Jews. I mean, look, he, in his defense, he had to, you know, stand up, you know, like his namesake. That's his namesake. He really needed to live up to the legacy. To me, that's so stupid because if you're a Goebbels, you're never going to be a bigger Jew hater than that Goebbels. Like, why do you go into this field? It's like being Will Smith's kid, being like, I'm going to be an actor. Like, don't do that. It's not going to work out for you. 
question. Are there a lot of Goebbelses around? I think there probably are. I think it's a fairly common German name. That sucks. I know of at least five who didn't quite make it out of the bunker, so. Now, I think I can top that, actually. The anti-Jewish aggression that I'm going to cite in News of the Jews this week, it's not a macroaggression, but it's a microaggression of the most insidious kind. It's not a big macroaggression? That's with the with the, uh, the Fixins bar. It's a whopper. Some of you know the website Cameo, where you can pay celebrities to send a short video with your text. You can like have them wish happy birthday to, you know, your sister-in-law or whatever. And somebody paid Smokey Robinson, the great Motown singer, to record a greeting for a seasonal holiday known to us Jews. And he did with his uh, mellifluous voice and good cheer. This is Smokey Robinson. I know you didn't expect to hear from me, but I was contacted by your sons, Jeff and Jerry, and they wanted me they told me that you used to live in Detroit across the street from me. And gosh, that's that's beautiful. Um, how are you doing again? <laughs> nice talking to you again, I guess. And they wanted me to wish you happy Chinooka. I have no idea what Chinooka is, but happy Chinooka <laughs> because they said so. Anyway, God bless you, babe, and enjoy Chinooka. Have a wonderful time. Now, I got to say, we're sort of paying the price for it. I mean, CH was never a good representation of the ch, of the fricative. Right. We've been trying to sell it for about 100 years. And Smokey Robinson has sort of made the point for us. How dare you, Smokey Robinson, not know how to pronounce the holiday whose name has 17 spellings we can't even agree on. By the way, Chinooka is how you would phonetically read it. Absolutely. Chanuka. Absolutely. He did no wrong, but I will say he did record and after this like got back to him because the the son posted it on Twitter and it, you know, obviously went viral. Several different people sent it to me and Smokey Robinson redid the video having learned what Chanuka was. It was like, you Fabringeners. What a mensch. And of course he did because he's a good man and a mensch. And to him, Smokey Robinson, we wish a happy and merry Tenth of Tevet. <laughs> and also, if I may, a Merry Tristmas. <laughs> Tristmas. Tristmas. This is like how I used to never know what day Christmas was. It's the 25th, right? <laughs> it never occurred to me that it was always on the same day. And now time for some pod biz. We have live shows, virtual of course, but they are exciting nonetheless. We'll be at Beth Sholem Congregation in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania for a live show Monday, January 11th at 6 p.m. with extra special guests, Jamie and Brian Stelter. Jamie Stelter is a host on New York One and Brian Stelter is the host of CNN's Reliable Sources. My parents single favorite show. Tickets are free. You can register at bit.ly slash U-O Beth Shalom. That's U-O-B-E-T-H-S-H-O-L-O-M. And on Thursday, January 14th, we'll be at the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center discussing our book, The New Jewish, Jewish Encyclopedia. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That'll be the three of us, and we'll be talking about our book, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You can go to stryker.nyc for more info. That's it for Podbiz. Our Jew of the Week is a woman who has almost as many Emmys as I have children. Meryl Marco has won four Emmys for her comedy writing. She's written for all sorts of shows, including Moonlighting, which is just awesome. 
also David Letterman, and she's the author of a new book, a graphic memoir called We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco. Meryl, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. I'm a Jew of the Week? Oh, we, we didn't <laughs> tell so you? kind of alarming. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your name goes on the list now. That's right. Uh-oh. So the book is so wonderful and so charming, but it did bring the following question to mind. Most of the comedians or comedy writers I know are sort of like profoundly broken people who turn to comedy because that's their way of handling, you know, sort of deep emotional issues through finding, you know, something funny rather than terrible about life. And this book manages to be both really super funny, but also really kind of insightful and at times even candid, very earnest about about some things like your father going bankrupt and he's sitting there on the couch and in retrospect saying, how could I not have noticed that his hands were trembling? Was that a hard gear for you to shift from funny to earnest and then back again? No, although nobody's ever asked me that question before. No, I think that's just what I do in life is go from funny to earnest and back again. Actually, funny comes out of discomfort. Like I've noticed that whenever I've been in jeopardy or like, for instance, hospitalized, I can't stop making jokes. So the greater the discomfort, the more the jokes come in when I'm sitting and writing. And actually, the way that this happened was I was looking at these old diaries that I found when I was cleaning out my office. I knew I had them, but I just hadn't read them in a long time. And I thought, well, it would be sort of funny to review them as though they were literature. Now that I've been a writer all these years, you know, my early works and stuff. And that was when I sat down to read them. And I realized that they were unlike anything I would ever write at any other point in my life because I didn't know what you were supposed to do with a diary. And my mother gave me my first one when I was about 10. And I just wrote down every single thing I did every day, which is very funny. You know, it's a funny thing to do. I mean, who does that? Only a kid who doesn't know what else they're supposed to be doing. So sitting in your Malibu home, surrounded by your Emmys and your glory, you open these diaries and and you feel what towards this little meticulously detail-oriented girl? I don't feel anything toward her, actually. (laughs) But I was interested that I had, it was an early piece of writing, and I was interested to see if I could pinpoint the moment where I turned into myself because the person who was writing those books as everybody who's about 10 or 11, you're not really who you're going to turn into yet. You're sort of a weird hybrid of your your genetics and your, your circumstances and copying your parents and whatever's around you. So I, I didn't really actually recognize her. Her personality wasn't much like mine, except for that she was already making some jokes, not very many jokes. At the same time, there's some gold in there that the 10-year-old version of you didn't notice was comedy gold because that wasn't your calling yet, right? So for example, this is definitely the only book I've read where the Jewish girl has a crush on a boy who who thinks that Nazi humor is funny. I don't even know if he was being funny. I really don't know. (laughs) I was in love with this guy named Wayne when I was in fourth and fifth and sixth grade. I mean, it was a long love. And by love, what I mean was that I thought he was cute. There was really, I had no information about him to this minute. (laughs) I knew nothing about him. (laughs) I only knew that I thought he was cute. So therefore I was in love with him. And he would do a Nazi salute when he saw me. And I thought it was, (laughs) oh good, he's paying attention to me. (laughs) The thing is, I'm not at all very identified in my own head with Jew. That's what we're here for, is to right. identify you with Jew. You do what you want your own head. Oh, I know, you made me Jew of the week, and I'm thinking, oh my God. Imagine what Wayne must feel now. 
<laughs> Who's sawing now, Wayne? <laughs> so I don't know if my parents had, certainly I knew about anti-Semitism to some extent because when we moved to Florida, my mother was going around looking for a summer place where we could use the pool. And she was asking whether or not the places were restricted. So she certainly had explained that to me. But I, I had never really experienced any particular Jewing one way or the other. I just was a kid, you know, so I didn't really know. I thought what he was doing was just paying attention to me and also letting me know that I was a powerful figure on the world stage. That's how I took it. <laughs> and I knew Hitler was horrible, but I mean, I didn't really, I didn't add these things up. I thought he was just going, just acknowledging that, uh, that I had come in and then we had a special... <laughs> Something or other. It was my connection to him, and I was in love with him. There are all sorts of flirtation techniques. So when did you, I mean, you were someone who was interested in, you know, yourself, as kids are, in boys, in ideas. You were a kind of soulful and, and increasingly political person. And then you got to Berkeley, which nurtures that. When was the turn where you thought, wait a second, what I want to do is, is I want to write funny? Because you'd been reading Kerouac and other sort of non-funny people. When did you think I want to write funny? Actually, that was in my 20s at some point. But I, my orientation to everything had always been funny. I don't think I really knew or even tried to ever have another gear. I liked it so much and I knew I could do it. I've thought about this a lot. And I think when you're a kid, you play the hand you're dealt. And I think if you're the prettiest kid in the class, you're playing that pretty early. You figure out that it has a lot of perks. And if you're somebody who can make people laugh and you're goofing around a lot, then that's certainly, for me, it was the thing, the way I made friends. You know, all my friends and I spent most of our time laughing. And that was always the greatest thing for me. And then as I got older, I realized you could look for film and TV and stuff that made you laugh. And I was looking for that. And then it, later it was other things. And when it got down to deciding I was going to write, which happened in my 20s, I never thought I'd be a writer, weirdly. But I... uh I immediately went to comedy. It just seemed like my area. You know, it was the thing I appreciated and it immediately looked to me like a thing I could probably do. So I started reading, trying to up my game by reading really high-end comedy writers to see where where the angle of approach was. And I found some good ones in like Robert Benchley and, and Dorothy Parker and stuff. Those were my early models. Before that, it was all the comedians I saw on TV. And so speaking of TV, you're the original head writer and, and the head writer for a long time of The David Letterman Show, which is a show I cannot stress enough how A, completely obsessed with it I am, B, how often I think about it because it seems to me that it influenced the landscape of TV today to the extent that it's one of these moments in which you really can't imagine the sort of time before because it changed sensibilities today so profoundly. And so when you watch TV today, do you ever sit there and watch like, all of you are just 20-something, 30-something years. All of you are just imitating me. That has sometimes happened where I've seen repeat stuff, but I'm more often, I don't usually watch that stuff. I don't watch any talk shows. The stuff I watch, I'm usually in awe of. I mean, there's such better TV now than there ever was when I was watching a lot of TV, which was, I, you know, weirdly, that was a thing that I realized by reading these old diaries is that I was inexorably headed for TV. You know, you don't really know what the story arc of your life is until you decide you have to write one, or at least in my case, I mean, I didn't have an obvious one. I had a daily life full of random stuff. And I realized that I was, I had started early in terms of a real passion for TV. I'd forgotten about that. Because by the time I had high school and then when I was in college, you weren't allowed to watch TV. It was against the law in my peer group. We didn't watch TV, except I watched, you know, I watched some Monty Python 
and maybe some PBS, but I just was rejecting mainstream culture. Isn't that so funny how TV in our own lifetimes has gone from being this object of total derision, no right thinking educated person could say that they loved TV to being this thing that everyone is supposed to love. And it happened like in a moment. It happened with The Sopranos or right around there. But it seemed like in a moment. For some people, it was The Sopranos. For me, I had the honor a number of years ago, I hosted an evening at the Writers Guild that was for um, the 100 best written TV shows or something like that. And I was interviewing selected TV people who had created landmark shows. And at that moment, I hadn't really realized how much TV had shifted. It was a big moment for me also. And because I knew I was going to have to interview Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad and also Matt, what's his name, from Mad Men and various other luminary people, I thought, okay, well, I haven't seen these shows. I really, it would be an insult for me not to sit down and watch and see what we're up to here. And I started out to sit down and watch Breaking Bad and got up six seasons later. You know, I, I couldn't believe how great it was. And, you know, here's the other thing that really, I couldn't wait to meet Vince Gilligan, and I couldn't wait to just say to him, how did you ever have the courage to go into a network meeting and go, okay, I have an idea for a show, and here it is. A guy has cancer, and his marriage is so-so, and, and um, he's worried he's going to die, so he decides to become a drug dealer. You couldn't have pitched that. The last meeting I had been to when I was pitching TV, I literally went to a network TV meeting where they said to me, we are not doing any more female-driven shows this season. We already have one. <laughs> and then they always were saying to me, whenever I'd come in with the stuff I'd pitch, well, why that? You know, the, the guy's not likable. It was always this stupid, restrained, restricted... And Vince Gilligan, to me, kicked down the door with Breaking Bad. Like, The Sopranos, certainly, but Breaking Bad for me, even more so. I mean, the mafia was kind of more, you were used to seeing mafia things, but right. a drug-dealing, cancer-ridden chemistry teacher, <laughs> and that he got them to say yes to him, you know, that to me was just, wow, we're, it's a new world suddenly. And since then, I've just, I've found so many shows I think are remarkably well-written, so great. I mean, I just, it's a whole other better world than it used to be. So let's talk about your drawing because you illustrate this graphic memoir as well. Yeah. And you illustrate it really well. Well, thank you. Are you self-taught on that or there's no art school in your- No, I have a master's degree in art. I didn't know that. When'd you do that? I did that at Berkeley. <laughs> that was what I was doing. I missed that somehow. Holy cow, you're really good at that. So were you going to be a, an artist? Well, yeah, I was. When I was in high school, I wanted to be an actress and my parents made so much crap out of that that I, I realized the least restricted, most creative thing I could do when I got to college was art. And I knew I could draw, you know, I already had some of that. So I, I went into the art department and stayed there for six years because when I got out at four years, I was under the impression that a BA in art would like mean something to someone, you know, I just, I, I thought it would, you know, I thought that I could go to like an advertising agency and show them my nude sketches and they'd go, whoa, and you're out of college and you're available. You know, I thought it was like. <laughs> I was an idiot is basically what I'm telling you. And so I had to go back to school and get the master's degree because I knew then you could at least become an art 
teacher at a college, which is what the coolest people I knew were doing, that, which was the other art teachers. You point out that when you started Berkeley as an undergrad, it was $75 a semester. Yeah, how great is that? Was the master's program like 100 bucks a semester, 125 I mean, you were able to do this without lots of debt? It's getting slightly more expensive as the years went by. You know, it started out at 75 and yeah, it was probably up to 150 by the time I graduated. Unbelievable. It's just not fair to people. It really isn't fair that I got to do that and other people didn't. I remember watching Saturday Night Live in the early 80s with my dad. I was staying up late. I was I was seven or eight years old and they had three minutes to kill at the end. It was 12.57. Eddie Murphy came out and he came out and they had a piano out and he just sat down and just started playing classical piano for like the last 90 seconds to end out the show. And then the credits rolled. <laughs> and I remember my dad looking at me and saying, Mark, these talented people, they can do everything. The actors can sing, the singers can play piano, the pianists can dance. And I've seen that time and again. It was like when um, Kate McKinnon came out and just played piano. Of course, of course she can play piano. That's the way I felt when I was reading this book that was so well-written. And then the art was also so moving. Well, I found that creative people, generally, it's you get more than one area. I got half an area. <laughs> I got, I got podcasting. You it's got like, more. You got more. That's right. That's like a quarter. I never thought I would do a graphic novel. I have a lot of friends. Not a lot, but a few friends, actually, people I met on Facebook who are sort of well-known cartoonists. And I always relate to people who do art because it's like a part of my background. And I went over to my friend Mimi Pond's house and looked at when she was making doing a graphic novel. And I saw this pile of drawings she had next to her. And I just went, that used to be me, but I know I don't have that patience anymore to sit and do all those thousands of drawings. Cut to, I did. Somehow, I did it a little at a time. I thought it started that I thought it might be funny to, after I had been reading these diaries for a while, I thought it might be funny to make a comic strip that would be an 11 or 12-year-old girl in another era. And I would just illustrate them without judgment. Just what mm -hmm. she tells you is happening. Just we buy it and then we don't really know more about her. And I started doing those drawings. And also I was wondering what I looked like before I was me and before I was being very introspective. I couldn't really, some of the stuff I plain old didn't remember anymore. I only remembered about a third of it. Sometimes I would think I remembered a thing, but then I would wonder whether I really remembered it or if I was now remembering the image I had when I read it. So you worked with David Letterman how many years? Six or seven or eight. You know, I worked with him. I was on his late night show maybe five and a half years, but I did two other shows with him, three other shows with him actually before that. I mean, we were both on this Mary Tyler Moore variety show I was in the writing staff and he was in the cast. And then after that, he got a pilot. It was for an afternoon talk show syndicated on NBC. And after that, we had a morning show that was live in New York, 90 minutes a day live. And then we got the night show. So by the time the night show happened, I'd already been in the pen there with him. So do you guys still talk? No. No, I guess we exchange emails. That's the way I plan to be with Liel after our podcast yep. ends, you know, like once <laughs> in a while. We're looking forward to it. It's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> So what's the next project? Are you working on the next book now or the next series? No, I, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, well, I was just going to sit down and write. Now I have to talk on a podcast. Oh, now I have to recover from the podcast. Well, we are so happy to have been your your distraction of, of the day. Deal That's in the right. week. <laughs> I never thought I would get that. You know, on page 19 or something of uh, We Saw Scenery, the early diaries of Meryl Marco, your mother tries to get you out of the house by sending you to Reform Temple Youth Group on a Friday night. 
It was my father. Yeah, that well, that was another weird thing. I had written down that fight verbatim. And you totally blanched and you didn't want to go. And I didn't go. Now that I'm a Jew of the week, I don't think I have to go to these You're things. done. We have a nice thing you can sew onto your outfit that lets people know you've been a Jew of the week. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, That's my outfit. Meryl Marco is the author of We Saw Cedary, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco, which I know you will enjoy as much as I did. Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. I ran into Wayne. I would need that Jew of the Week thing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, if you're listening. Write to her at Meryl at MerylMarco.com. <laughs> she misses you. <laughs> no, I'm happy to never find out what he's up to. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Sarah Kogelman writes on our Facebook group. Ugh, amazing name, by the way. We'll never get over that name. Doesn't even matter what she writes. Sarah Kogelman, your letter is great. We can move on. So much pressure, though. Like, what if you don't bake a good Kugel and your name is Sarah Kogelman? The bar is very high. She writes, I'm likely due to get the COVID vaccine before the rest of my family because of my job. So I joke that they can send me out to stores like a Shabbos goy for COVID. My family is now calling me the COVID goy. That's amazing. Sarah, will you do some tasks for us? Will you run out to, uh, to Kohl's and buy me some stuff? <laughs> I need some new t-shirts. 
By the way, we should think about really Sarah Kugelman, like the things she could be doing. She's, it's a superpower. Don't waste her on coals. Like she could go to the the uh, baked potato bar at Wendy's, load it up with everything, bring it back. This is amazing. Serve me a potato. A letter, dear all. Maybe you've talked about this on the show in the past, but if so, I need a refresher. Why do certain Orthodox Jews shun vaccines? As much as I look into the anti-vax movement, I've never understood it. I always thought all Jews were logical and loved doctors. Thanks for providing me with just enough Jewishness every week. Love and Knishes, Lori Sandler, Canada. First of all, Leo, where do you stand on Knishes versus potato lockies? Knishes is a far superior delivery mechanism for potatoes than the latke could ever dream of being. Totally disagree, but whatever. I'm telling you, latke is number 19 in the hierarchy. So much to unpack here. So much to unpack. Uh, first of all, Lori Sandler, Canada. You write, thanks for providing me with just enough Jewishness every week. Are you saying that if we, that there are weeks when if we put in a little more Jewishness, we'd be over the top and we would not be your podcast of choice? I'm, I'm curious how you calibrate. Also, where is that line? Just enough Jewishness, not too much. Yeah. Next week, we're going to read the whole Tanya on air. It's going to be a 17 hour episode. It's just that. Just us reading the Tanya. No, it'll just be the sound of our feet doing the breast lover dance, that ecstasy dance where they just twirl. And you'll just hear us, our feet shuffling. Too much Judaism? Not enough Judaism. You be the judge. Tasty cakes? Not enough Judaism because they're not Drake's cakes? Question. It's Lori Sandler Canada is her name. She's not from Canada. Yes, correct. Love it. I'm all about the names of this round of the mailbag. Okay, second issue to deal with here. You're right. I always thought that all Jews were logical and loved doctors. It is true that all Jews love doctors. It is not true that all Jews are logical. And that brings us to the first premise, which is you seem to think that Jews are somehow smart and do the right thing. Jews are just as likely to be stupid as other people. The fact that some tiny percentage of us are smart enough to win Nobel Prizes, as your aunt and uncle, especially your aunt Sylvia, will email you about every single year, does not mean that on average, we're not just as stupid as everyone else. We are. Jews, they're just like us. Just like us. Just as stupid but with a better potato-based Hanukkah snack. And, you know, we could go into other reasons. I mean, some Haredi groups have a mistrust of modernity. Some people think that some of this goes back to fears from the Holocaust when some Nazi doctors performed experiments on some Jews. I tend to think that's a bit overstated as an explanation of the general phenomenon. There is one Rebetzin, one rabbi's wife in American ultra-Orthodoxy who is extremely anti-vaxxer and has kind of spread that poison to some communities. But in general, it's just like, hey, other groups got their stupid and, you know, we've got our stupid. So sorry. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I'm sorry to bring you down in this uh, Chinooka season. But there it is. Uh, Keith Duddy writes to us after listening to last week's episode, I can't even escape Christmas on a Jewish podcast. So I guess for him, Laurie Sandler Canada, we were not Jewish enough. And this episode will not help. Not help. Keith Duddy, I am officially christening you. Keith Fuddy Duddy. No. That's your new Christian no. name. Fighting words. I have no last name based bullying on this podcast. <laughs> Hello from Colorado's number one unorthodox fan. This is Jeannie Blakely. I was so excited to listen to this morning's episode featuring Governor Jared Polis. I do, though, first have one bone to pick with Liel. I'm actually a Colorado native, and I would not be caught dead in a fleece and could literally care less about hiking or skiing, much to the horror of all the Colorado transplants. But I actually work in Colorado politics, and I just wanted to reiterate that I've seen firsthand the absolutely disgusting anti-Semitism thrown at our governor. It is horrible and very real. But on a lighter note, since this episode also featured Oppenheimer 2.0, I thought I would share a fun fact that Governor Polis's legislative director is in Oppenheim. Small world. Happy Thursday. Can't wait for next week's episode. Thanks all for cheering up my week. 
Jeannie Blakely, thanks for the call. Uh, first of all, we we regret and we are sorry that there's so much anti-Semitic hate directed at your governor. He was awesome. Lee Allen here are now gaming Mythic Quest every night on their consoles. <laughs> Mythic Quest, as the kids call it. That's right. It's obviously auspicious that somebody in his administration is named Oppenheim, though it's not the full Oppenheimer. It's, it's three syllables out of four. You're 75% there. And that's great. But the last thing I want to say to you, Jeannie Blakesley, is I love how much pep there is in your voicemail. And as I was listening to the inbox this week, deciding which voicemail to play, I was struck by the fact that we had several voicemails that had really strong content with really, really monotone, indeed soporific readings. By the time I got to the end of a 90-second listen to some of these voicemails, I thought, I can't subject my listeners to this because this person sounds as if he's putting himself to sleep in this read. When you call in to 914-570-4869, sound super excited that you're on the line with us because we're super excited that you're on the line with us. We love hearing from you. So, you know, just just listen to how Jeannie Blakesley does it and bring the pep, listeners. That's what we want. Bring the pep. So our guest today is, we're very official here, His Excellency, Philippe Etienne, the ambassador of the great nation of France to the United States. Ambassador, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me, Liel. I am a bit less official, excuse me, but I am very happy to be with you this morning. You could be less official because you're broadcasting from the marvelous residency of the ambassador, which is everything that our listeners would imagine it to be. I want to start on a sort of a more somber note. You wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post last month, which discussed the tragic murders of Samuel Paty, the school teachers, as well as three Catholic worshippers in Nice by Islamist extremists. And One of the things that you took to task in this op-ed is the kind of general failure in the United States to understand the French concept of laïcité, which you write, cannot really be accurately translated just by the word secularism. So I'm wondering, and, and this is a sort of an easy question for Monday morning, If you could begin by explaining laïcité to us. (laughs) Quite a good start in my week, indeed. Well, I think first, I thank you for uh, recalling listeners that we are going in France through difficult times with those two terrorist attacks, terrible murders of a, a teacher and also a full event in a church. This is quite a difficult challenge for our society. But this intervenes in a context and uh, It is not new that our laïcité is something not always easy to understand in other countries. Although here in the United States, there is also this separation between religions and state, the setting is a bit different. And we have a whole history behind us. And uh, the laïcité is um, a kind of secularism which has been uh, anchored in our legislation at the beginning of the 20th century. At that time, It was about the relations between the French state and the Catholic Church, but it goes back even uh, to the French Revolution and to the ideas that founded our republic. 
I recall that the French Revolution was the first which gave a full citizenship rights to our Jewish communities. And we, the ICT is also above the principle of separation, also the principle of freedom, freedom of religion. Every religion is free to develop its activities, but the churches, the cults are separated from the state. This is really important. There is also the freedom for non-believers, and this freedom is a, a full part of the laicite idea. To many of our listeners, I, I assume this sounds very thoughtful, almost you know obvious principles that, that we all support. And yet, after these attacks, much of the American media, uh, shall we say, including the New York Times, wrote these pieces that I know you took to task in, in several of your public statements, basically saying, you know, France, it's your own fault. Because you have this freedom of speech, because you have this laicite, because people could just come and draw cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, you're bringing all this violence on yourself. Being confronted with these reports in, in the American media, what did that feel like? Was that very strange to behold? I will not conceal from you. We had the sometimes a feeling of not being understood, but everybody has uh, the right to disagree. It's, uh, it's basically uh, the... <laughs> also the freedom of speech. So we didn't want to react against uh, comments and expression of disagreements, but we wanted to explain our situation. And I think it is very important. And first thing to explain, of course, the situation after those terrorist attacks, which is something really it's a sort of trauma. And uh, every country having uh, had terrorism on its uh, territory, on its soil against population, including the United States, of course, can understand that. And point two, we wanted to explain our system of laicity, as we have tried to do uh, in my previous answer. And third, now to come to your question, to explain what freedom of speech is, because indeed, I can completely understand that the publication of such caricatures is uh, shocking for, for people, but it's part of our freedom of speech. There are limits to the freedom of speech when it comes to lead people through hatred messages to committing violence. For instance, the denial of the Holocaust is a criminal offense in our legislation and is punished by law because we consider it, it is something which incites to hatred. And beyond that, freedom of speech has to be accepted as it is. So we wanted to explain, we, we can disagree again, it's normal and our systems are different and we have to explain them to our friends and in particular between the United States and its oldest ally, which is France. We have to accept when we disagree, but we have first to get things and facts right. This was the most important purpose of my reactions. Did that reaction surprise you? You know, this sudden failure to understand these principles and ideas of, of freedom of speech among among so many here in, in the American elite? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, because we were a bit more vulnerable in those times after those terrorist attacks. So we, of course, you expect solidarity from your friends. And I think we got this solidarity, but we wanted to really, again, not to react against uh, journalists writing certain things, but against our reality not being exactly described. But no, I was not surprised on the other end because it's not new that the, the secularism is organized in a different way in our countries. So it's normal that we have again and again to explain it. But of course, it was all the more important in this period and it is all the more important. You know, I think we our countries are all confronted to this uh, question of freedom of speech, but in different ways. We start from similar core values. Our democracies are founded on the importance of freedom, of democracy. But then we have our own histories. We have different settings. And 
we have to find ways to act together in spite of the different ways we are organized, but based on our common values. And I will give you one example of something which is related to our discussion where we can act together. It's the fight against hatred, speech, and anti-Semitism and even terrorist contents, actually, on internet, which is something new because people who get to commit these uh, terrorist attacks, where do they get now in our times those ideas? Well, from messages carried, including by terrorist organizations such as uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda, which uh, try to recruit new uh, new members, new followers through uh, their messaging on internet. So one of our priorities and it's it's against all terrorist messaging, not only one type of terrorist messaging, is what we have tried to do with the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Eden, through the Christchurch call to action, following a terrible terrorist attack against Muslims, against the mosque in, in Christchurch in New Zealand. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, together with our president, they met in May 2019 in Paris, and they launched this Christchurch call to action. And that we have been working with tech platforms, and it's really important important to support this. And we need more and more governments, including the US government, joining this type of action where we work together, public-private partnership against terrorist contents on internet. So, Mr. Ambassador, since you mentioned anti-Semitism, the numbers in France look pretty grim. I know that attacks against Jews accounted for something like 60% or more of hate crimes in 2019, which is a shocking almost 30% increase from the previous year. I know this is something that your government takes very seriously. France has the third largest, I believe, population of Jews in the world after Israel and the United States. So what could France be doing to keep its Jewish population from leaving and, and to keep it feeling safe and engaged? Well, it's absolutely an essential goal for us. We are proud to host the third largest Jewish community in the world, as you said, after Israel and the United States. And it's an essential part of our republic. France is an incredibly uh, diverse country with this community, but also uh, Muslim communities and many others. So we, we want to, to keep this diversity and we the French Jewish community, the French Jewish citizens are really an essential part of our identity of our community. So we have to act because we have this surge of anti, anti-Semitism both in France, in the US and in many, many other countries, including our democratic countries. And it's a scourge and we, we act against it through different ways. One very important event was, of course, the definition of anti-Semitism, which uh, has been adopted by the French parliament one year ago, which is the IHIA definition, which is really something important. But we have also some priorities and the the fight against radicalization. I mentioned the internet dimension is also part of this. Now, the three most important dimensions of the fight against anti-Semitism are, for me, prevention, prosecution, and education. And we have all of this in an action plan, which is implemented by our government. And I will insist on the education part of it. And the adoption of this definition by our parliament is part of it, because we have to educate also and to enable our teachers to fight against anti-Semitism in, in the school. We have founded, for instance, an Ilam Halimi Award, which is uh, awarded every year, We try to improve the awareness by all our teachers about how to bring the importance of the fight against anti-Semitism for our society to our youth. 
The award, of course, named after Ilan Khalimi, the Jewish youth who was murdered by Islamist extremists several years ago. Let me sort of shift gears here and ask you this. There's a longstanding tradition of French travelers to the United States who very poignantly and insightfully basically see us for what we really are and help us understand the American soul better than any American ever could. You've arrived here several years ago. You came here at a very interesting period in this nation's history. How did you find America? What is it that you see? I I think that you've been here several times before. What are we like to you right now? Well, actually, you know, Liel, I was not, when I arrived, it was last year, I was not somebody who knew really the United States. I have been there before with my family as a private traveler, both in the West and in the East of the United States. And I had some official missions to New York and Washington, but I didn't know really the United States. And uh, I was really uh, impressed by, by, of course, it's a bit evident to say that, but still I say it, I was impressed by the diversity of this country. It represents such an incredible riches in the world by by all all the people who have made the United States uh, from all over the world. And one of the things I cannot do anymore since March, as I did before, is to travel. But even the city of Washington is really uh, amazing. And uh, we are with my wife so happy to live here in Washington. But I traveled still. I succeeded to discover more or less 20 among the 50 states of the United States since I arrived and the big cities, but also some uh, smaller cities. And it's really uh, an amazing diversity. And it's, uh, I think it's uh, a treasure for the world in uh, to have this most important, most powerful country in the world being itself so so diverse and so, so attached to the freedom and the diversity of its uh, people. Are there any kind of mundane yet important difficulties? I imagine someone who is accustomed to Paris and proper boulangeries, waking up in the morning and, you know, having croissant at Panera or McDonald's, you know, it's not quite the same. Are are there any things that you really wish we did a little bit better? Well, it's a good thing that we are all attached to our country, to our culture. By the way, one one of the most important missions of an ambassador is to bring the people through the culture, through the cultural um, traditions. And gastronomy belongs for France to culture, of course. So <laughs> I will not hide that sometimes I miss some of our cheese, or uh, <laughs> but I'm really happy to be here. We find everything here and we have also a, a very good chef here. And so I am very lucky and uh, I benefit from every possible um, thing you can imagine, as you mentioned, uh, in this residence. It's a beautiful place. No, so I'm really happy. And uh, this COVID time is a, is a difficult time for many people and we we are very privileged. The thing I miss most now is uh, the contact, the personal contact with uh, both American and French uh, intellectuals. And uh, I hope we will find them again as we had before. And I do all I can to still meet people with all precautions, all sanitary precautions, but it is the thing I miss most, mostly right now. Ambassador, one final question for you. You You're now in Washington in yet another exciting period, another regime, another, you know, administration is, is taking office. Considering the challenges that we just discussed that France and, you know, indeed much of Europe are facing currently, specifically with regards to curbing extremism, what is it that an incoming Biden administration 
could do to truly help France meet what I agree with you is is not just one nation's struggle, but but a truly international fight against radicalism? Well, I think uh, that the uh, priorities set by the, the future administration are really uh, important for us too uh, in Europe, not only in France, because it's very much about getting back to international cooperation, to improving, but keeping the rules-based multilateral order, and then to act together when we, the democracies, the democracies to defend our values together on the stage of the world, which is something we, we very much agree with. And including for uh, the priorities we have described in this conversation with you, but also the, the first priorities uh, described by the president-elect, global health and the fight against the virus and, and the recovery, but also climate going back to the Paris Climate Agreement and fight against the climate change. All of this belongs also to our priorities and we look forward to a cooperation on these fields with the United States in the coming months and years on all those levels. Well, Mr. Ambassador, I am very grateful to you for taking the time and I hope that the rest of your tenure would be virus-free and filled with good corporation, good cheer, and, and maybe some decent meals here and there as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shell. Thank you for, for the invitation. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have a basha tova, which is what mm. you say instead of mazel tov, to someone like Jenny Slate, who revealed on a very funny Seth Meyers segment that she is pregnant. We're very excited for her. Basha tova, Jenny Slate. And I have a, not a basha tova, not a mazel tov, but a farewell to the great comedian Katie Lazarus, who recently died of breast cancer at the age of 44. She hosted a long-running live show and podcast in which she interviewed people about the jobs that they did. I think it was one of the most moving and interesting uses of the audio form that we've seen in this podcast revolution, and I encourage everyone to go check it out. She also did one of the funniest YouTube bits I've ever seen, where she got people in hipster Brooklyn neighborhoods to taste artisanal human breast milk, which was just one of the most hilarious, witty, satirical things that I had seen in a long time. And she was a guest on our 50th episode. So I want to say farewell. Uh, it was very moving reading her obituaries. I learned a lot more about her than I had ever known. And I felt really grateful that we had the chance to have her on the show. Here's Katie Lazarus from episode 50, The Hot Seat, from July 2016. I made like bottles that was like the Crown Heights mama, the Park Slope <laughs> mommy, and like the Williamsburg mom. And like- These I were different flavors of yeah, locally sourced? Yeah. Okay. And Got like it. gave like different reasons why you would want this one versus another one and um, gave out free samples. And I was- Oh, um, I'm sorry. Does it make- Tastes different depending on what you eat? Yes, they do. Oh. Yeah. Did you taste it? Um, by accident, I did. Ooh. So I had a bottle of, and also it was, it was like out all day just Ooh. to add to the like Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. If you want our newsletter, subscribe at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. The associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Yisrael Gettinger of Congregation B'nai Torah in Indianapolis, Indiana. We come to you once again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.
Yeah, but also Josh could cut it if he wants to. So. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Josh can cut, cut it. it. Josh has unlimited power. 